Good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McCallum. It's a joy to be with you this morning as we begin to, or not begin, but as we close out our series in Colossians. I'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, I have two quick things for you, and then we'll dive into the text because as Gabe just read, we have a lot of it uh, this morning. And so the first thing is more of a reminder You might hear this in the video announcements later today, and that is this Thursday, uh, we're starting a class, and we're calling it Asking for a Friend. And uh, the class is based on idolatry, relationships, and sex, all of the things that are fun to talk about, all of the things that make people like stand up and nice and straight. We like making people feel uncomfortable, for the glory of God. Nevertheless, that class begins on Thursday. It's a three-week class. It begins on Thursday at 6.30 at the Old Church Winery. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we released the launching of a new ministry called Antioch Institute, where classes and workshops are being pretty much pushed out throughout the year and from here on out. One of the things that we're doing is trying to determine what nights are best. And so we did a class on spiritual warfare a couple of weeks ago. We tested out Wednesdays. That's kind of cool. Uh, it seems to work middle of the week. Now we're going to test out Thursdays. And so um, thank you for your patience and your grace as we work through some of the details in these classes. Previously, we used to try Mondays. And so um, if you got feedback, I would love to hear it. So that's uh, the first reminder. The second one is, if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be Bibles in the rows before you. Take one, use it. That's a gift from us to you. Uh, There are also Bibles and Connect cards at the Connect desk up here in the front. I think that's all I have. I'd love to just dig into our time. So once more, we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. And so uh, if you are new, or in case you forgot, over the last nine weeks, we have found ourselves working through uh, this short book in Colossians. And today we come to an end in this wonderful book. And while we do have, as I mentioned, a lot of scripture to examine, I want to begin with a brief summary of what God has said through the Apostle Paul up until now. And so if you refer back to chapter one, uh, Paul opens by teaching the Colossians and us that the supremacy of Christ assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. And as a result, thanksgiving then flows out from us in our daily worship of Christ, the everyday rhythms that you and I experience. Thanksgiving, we said, helps combat discontentment because thanksgiving is rooted in the truth of God. In chapter 2, Paul delivers his argument against the false teaching that was circulating around the church in Colossae. Paul goes on to say that uh, what these false teachers are preaching is that uh, the Colossians need to add spiritual disciplines and the appearances of, of holiness are all added onto their faith in Christ. And Paul goes on to say that not only is that not true, but all of that teaching is of no value because it is void of Christ. He closes chapter 2 by saying the appearance of wisdom and the appearance of holiness by the adding of some of these spiritual uh, disciplines that they keep pushing on you are of no value because they do nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. When we went through chapter 3, and that was the past two weeks, Paul assures the Colossians of their identity. So as they are being persuaded to turn away from Christ and add more to their faith, Paul then comes in and assures them of their identity in Christ, opening up chapter 3 by saying, since you have been raised with Christ, because you are new, this is who you are. And as a result, he begins to unpack how their identity in Christ impacts all areas of their personal life. How the gospel impacts one another within the church. How the gospel impacts marriage and relationships and ethics and parenting and our vocation. The gospel matters ultimately because it leaves no stone unturned and affects every area of our heart. 
And now as we come to the closing chapter, in chapter four, uh, Paul gives his final instructions to the Colossians and he leaves them with a message of faithfulness. He is still, however, instructing them how the gospel impacts their lives, and he does so by expanding upon faithfulness in three ways, through prayer, missional living, and service or serving. And that's what the Christian life entails, isn't it? Faithfulness. It's not about perfection, but faithfulness. It's not about the adding to this faith in Christ, but it is about faithfulness in Christ. And sometimes it feels like faithfulness is difficult because of its simplicity. But the truth is that the call to faithfulness is rooted in a love for Jesus first. So as we examine the last section of Colossians, you'll see how Paul continues to connect theology and practice. That's something that we discussed back in chapter three. He never separates them. He does not separate theology from practice and it is always in that order. It is theology first and then practice. Who we are, who God says we are informs how we live. All of that is rooted and what Christ has done for the Colossians, and what Christ has done for you. So do not forget that, Christian. The call to faithfulness is rooted in a love for Jesus first. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start by looking at verses 2 through 4. So join me in prayer. Lord, I, I wish to begin this time by thanking you for the mothers in our congregation. Godly women who desire to pursue holiness as they fix their eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Godly women who are some of the most theologically minded people laughing at the future because of their security in Christ. God, may you bless them this morning. May they be comforted this morning. May they be sanctified this morning through your scripture. May they continue being an example of godliness in our church for your glory and their good. And as we turn in studying and examining your word, may our hearts be revealed to us this morning. Holy Spirit, work in us so that we would be more like Christ, not simply better, but more like Christ. May the words of your scripture be sweeter than honey for our soul. We praise you and give you the glory. Sanctify us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, chapter four is this continuation of the effects of the gospel in our life. In this section, Paul transitions towards faithfulness, and we're going to begin with prayer. Faithfulness and prayer. So what is prayer? I think we know and that we would agree that it is an essential part of the Christian life. It involves communion with the Lord. It involves our confidence in coming before him. But what is prayer? If you look throughout theological books, websites, you might come up with several definitions. I'll give you two. One of them is from the New City Catechism. The New City Catechism is part of the curriculum that we use in, in, uh, in Storehouse Kids. Also, the app is free. So if you're like, I've got to write it down, just download the app. The New City Catechism asks the question, what is prayer? The answer is, praying is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. It's good. You want a little bit more density? Let's go to the Westminster Confession of Faith. The question is, well, what is prayer? This is also available online, by the way. It's free. And it says, Praying is an offering up of our desires onto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Both definitions teach us that prayer involves us approaching God. 
Both definitions involve us having confidence before the Lord in light of what Jesus has done for us because of the Spirit residing in us. Both teach us that when it comes to prayer and as we approach the Lord in confidence, we offer up our desires, we confess our sins, and there is thanksgiving involved in prayer. Prayer is important because God wants to hear from his children. He is a good father, and as a good father, we must remember that we have access to him through Christ. Yesterday morning, we, we were uh, meeting up with several of our group leaders, and we were discussing spiritual disciplines like prayer, and not only their significance, but also our reluctancy. And in these short verses, in two through four, I want to show you what prayer involves and how yesterday's conversation applies to this. And so beginning with verse two, here's what Paul says that prayer requires. First thing is, and you'll see this up on the screen, is meditation. Paul opens by saying, continue steadfastly in prayer. The focus here on meditation, the focus is on the word continue. Prayer is an ongoing discipline. It is an ongoing practice that doesn't end. And the point of this discipline is that we are formed by it, which means continuing uh, in prayer is not simply random or that it lacks purpose, but it is intentional. It is us communion with God. And because prayer is intentional, it requires meditation, where we think deeply on the things of God, where we engage the text, where we set time aside to be nourished by the word of God. Oftentimes we uh, think about Psalm 1, where the psalmist says uh, that you are to, or that he is to meditate on the law of God day and night. That word meditate requires a lot of brain power because it means that we are intentionally setting time aside, thinking deeply of, of, of the things of God, thinking deeply about engaging the text. Prayer involves meditation. Secondly, prayer involves heart work. This is highlighted by the word steadfast or steadfastly. To be steadfast is to move forward while under pressure. I think I, I use uh, a little too much the analogy of this exercise called a stone carry. I'm not going to do that now. But the idea of steadfastness comes from that analogy that you are able to move forward under pressure. And in the context of prayer, one of the things that steadfast or being steadfast implies is heart work. This is where we not only engage the text and what God is saying, but this is where the text engages us, where we must address our heart, our disposition, where we must address the thoughts that we don't like thinking about. One of, uh, one of the books I'm reading, uh, it's written by, I think it's Tom Noble, I may have butchered that, but it's called Disruptive Witness. And the idea about this book is he is talking about what it looks like to, to, to be a witness in a digital age, what it looks like to be a witness for Christ in, in a digital age. And his opening chapter or the opening section of the book, he goes on to say that one of the difficulties that we have in actually engaging scripture and even engaging people uh, is not that we're incapable, but it's that we have been so conditioned by our phones to check them all of the time. And so, for instance, he uses an example of washing the dishes, and then he finishes washing the dishes, and then he checks his phone. And he wonders, why did he just do that? Like, there's no purpose of checking or washing the dishes and then checking the phone, like, nada que ver, right? And so the idea here uh, is that the reason we have become conditioned to regularly checking our phones is because the truth is we don't like being alone with our thoughts. And so when we consider heart work, we actually have to engage those thoughts. We actually have to reflect on the condition of our heart. We actually have to preach the gospel to ourselves in that moment. Prayer involves heart work. That's, that's what it is to be steadfast. 
Paul continues saying that prayer involves uh, being watchful. Continue steadfastly, so that is ongoing. In prayer, being watchful. The I-N-G in being means that this is something that is a continuation, that we are constantly growing in this, that we're constantly pursuing it. And so being watchful now is word work. that as we grow in our life in prayer, it's gonna involve word work, where we engage the text, where we learn what is actually being said, right? Where we're looking at the context, where we begin to memorize scripture, and where we begin to think on it throughout the day. And when I say think on it, I'm talking actual chewing through what we just read, what God is doing, what God is convicting us. I'm not just talking about the Proverbs of the Day app that you have. I'm talking about knowing the context of what is going on in whatever it is that you're reading and meditating on that, thinking on it. Because here's the thing, remember the context in which Paul is talking. So, so he says, being watchful, what's going on in Colossae? There are false teachers that are trying to persuade them away from the word of God. And so when Paul says to continue praying, being watchful, it involves word work. It involves us engaging the word by memorizing it, learning it, so that as lies or deceit or different doctrines try to persuade us away from the word of God, we're able to actually engage them and push back against them because we're rooted in God's word. So the question here for you, Christian, is are you being watchful? Are you being watchful? Paul closes verse two by saying, being watchful in it, that is prayer, with thanksgiving. Paul has talked about thanksgiving a ton in this book. Chapter one, he goes on to, to praise God and to thank God for his work in the life of the Colossians. In chapter two, he opens up by saying, because you have received this faith in Christ, therefore walk in this faith with thanksgiving. As he addresses how the gospel impacts our everyday lives and particularly with one another, he says that we are to do it with thanksgiving. Here we are in chapter 4, approaching faithfulness in prayer, and Paul says that we are to do this with thanksgiving. Prayer involves gratitude because we are a thankful people, that the Lord Jesus has redeemed us, the Lord Jesus has purchased us, that he has made us his, that he, as Paul says in chapter 2, has transferred us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his light. Thanksgiving combats discontentment because thanksgiving is rooted in truth. You want to push back? You want to fight against discontentment and bitterness? Question first is, are you thankful? What does is, what is your prayer life look like? And does it involve thanksgiving? See, the, the beauty of this part is it doesn't necessarily matter how differently and how wired we are. Sometimes I think Christians will use that too much as an excuse. Well, I'm wired to think a certain way. It's not what I asked. Are you thankful? Finally, prayer involves intercession. Moving into verse three. Here's what Paul says. At the same time, pray also for us. So in chapter one, Paul says, I've been praying for you. In fact, here is my prayer. And that's the start of verse nine in chapter one. Here is my prayer for you. Here is what I've been praying to God for you. Regularly throughout the, the letter, Paul is telling them how much he has been praying for them. Even though he's never met them, he is praying for them. And now we come to chapter four and Paul says, I would love it if you prayed for me. I would love it if you prayed for me. Paul is always thankful for people, and you know that because of his prayer life. So do you pray for the saints in our church? Do you pray for one another? What Emma said. Um, do you pray man, for your family? Do you pray over them? I want you to notice two things about intercession here. The first is Paul's specific prayer. He goes on to say, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that Christ may be known. 
on the account of which I am in prison. I want you to notice something, right, in this specific prayer. Paul does not ask the Colossians, hey, pray that I would be released from prison. That's not his prayer. His specific prayer is that God would open an opportunity for him to declare the gospel to those who don't know him where he's at. Sometimes when it comes to, man, I just want to bounce from this situation, Paul says, I don't need my circumstance changed. I need opportunities to preach the gospel. But within that, notice how specific it is. Additionally, in his uh, specificity, he also adds clarity. This is the guy who has the equivalent of two PhDs. He says that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul is asking not only to uh, pray for him so that he may have opportunity to preach the gospel, but that he may be clear in his declaration of the gospel. That is, not only knowing what to say, but saying it clearly. Paul understands that people will reject the gospel, but do those people know what they're rejecting? He wants clarity. He doesn't want to uh, uh, make it so complicated. He wants to speak clearly. He wants to share the gospel clearly to those around him. Do you pray for the saints next to you? Do you pray for our church, specific people? Many of you are in community with one another, growing in friendships. Do you share specific prayer requests? I wasn't raised in the church, and I remember when I became a Christian, we were in a community group, and I was around several of the guys who were raised in the church. And uh, one of them, his name is uh, Maya, and we were uh, sharing prayer requests. And so Maya raises his hand, and he says, I have an unspoken. And everybody starts laughing, and I had no idea what that meant, right? Apparently, back in his, like, Baptist church growing up, like if you didn't want to share what was going on, you'd raise your hand and say, I have an unspoken. I have no idea what that means, right? However, right, what we see here is Paul actually put everything on the table. This is specifically what I need prayer in. This is specifically the circumstance that I find myself in. Therefore, this is what I need. What if we, what would it look like for us to be a church, not of unspokens, but of specific prayer requests. Faithfulness involves prayer. Moving forward, we come to now missional living. That is faithfulness in missional living. This is verses five through six. Missional living is, is how we live and interact with those who do not know Jesus. And sometimes too many Christians can be very legalistic about uh, rejecting those who don't know Jesus. It's them and they reject themselves. They separate themselves because others are so worldly. Other Christians sometimes lack conviction that you can't tell the difference between the world and the church. However, in these texts or in these verses, Paul tells us to engage those who aren't Christians and he's assuming that it's happening regularly. Do you have friends and family that don't know Jesus? You should. You should have friends that don't know Jesus. You should have family that doesn't know Jesus. So how's it going? Everybody's real cool with the John Calvin book, but when it comes to the non-Christian, they run away. Do you have friends and family who do not know the Lord? How's it going? Paul opens up, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Remember, he is assuming that you're doing this. You're walking out in the city. You're walking out in your community. You got friends. You got family that do not know the Lord. And Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. We have talked extensively about the word walk in this book. And to walk implies the nature of our character, what is habitual, our ongoing regular practices, how our life is shaped by our belief. Remember, theology and practice are never separate. They go hand in hand. And so when he says walk in wisdom, that is walking in the faith that we have in Christ. He adds walk in wisdom. Wisdom implies that we are exercising discernment. And oftentimes, knowledge and discernment go hand in hand in Scripture. Therefore, I think it's important to define discernment. 
Here's a helpful definition from Tim Challies. He says, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. I think that's a great definition. That it is something that we, you and I, as Christians, must cultivate. And as we cultivate discernment, it begins first with understanding God's truth, which means that you and I are being nourished first by the word of God. That that's where it begins. Where we are meditating upon the word of God. When we are doing the heart work, the word work, as we are praying for those around us, for our friends, for our family, those in our church. It involves word work. And then he goes on to say, it's not just uh, understanding, but it is also applying God's word. For the purpose of what? For the purpose of us making distinctions between godly, ungodly, sound teaching from false teaching, righteous from unrighteous, truth from error, right from wrong. It involves word work. It involves applying that in whatever circumstance you find yourself in right now. Are you applying? Are you exercising discernment? That's the key. The author of Hebrews says it similarly. Here's what he writes. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by what? Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice that is regularly engaging God in his word, that is regularly applying it, and when you fail, repenting quickly, fixing your eyes upon the Lord, taking ownership, and then moving forward, doing things differently the next time. All right? So verse five tells us how to walk among outsiders. And then as we continue moving, actually, as we continue in verse five, Paul says that walking in wisdom means that our life is shaped by what we believe and as we interact with friends and family, uh, we know what we're doing. We're exercising discernment and we're making the best use of time, right? Paul continues, uh, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. That little phrase, best use of time, it's translated into buying up time. Like, like a bargain, you keep on wanting more time and you want more time so that you have more opportunities to take advantage of, to share the gospel, Notice you're intentional, not just about the windows that you're giving, about the doors that are open, but you try to maximize that time. Today's, today's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Lots of families, friends are going to be hanging out at the house. That is, as an example, an opportunity to buy up time. That as the opportunity comes, you share the gospel. You pray for your family. You serve them, Right? That's the use of, or the, 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 the application of making use for this time. Paul continues, hey, in light of this, this is how we're going to talk. And here's what I want you to do, not just with the context of Mother's Day, but I want you to think about several platforms and environments. I want you to think about social media or your workplace or disagreements that you have with friends or family, people here in the church, right? Paul says that not only are we to walk in wisdom, but our speech ought to look and sound a certain way. So let's look at that. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. This is, the word gracious here actually has double meaning. That for the Christian, you have personally experienced God's grace for you. That is unmerited favor from God toward you. You have been transformed. You are not only saved by grace, but sustained by grace. In addition to that, the second part is that because we have been, because we have received God's grace for us, that we are able to extend that grace towards others, particularly when we disagree, particularly when we don't know the answer or don't have an answer. Are you gracious? And you're not sometimes. Are you always gracious in your speech? Is grace purely intellectual? Or is it actually walked out in your speech? 
Secondly, Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. That phrase, seasoned with salt, translates to the word salty. (laughs) Anyway, but it's not the kind of salty you and I are thinking about. It's not what he means, right? What Paul means here is that as you are speaking graciously, that your speech has flavor, that you're not monotone or boring. You actually engage people, that you're actually passionate when it comes to the Lord Jesus, when there's that opportunity to share the gospel and you take it, when you take it confidently. That doesn't mean you have all of the answers, but your speech has flavor to it. It has passion. It has desire. You actually want to talk about the Lord Jesus. That's what he means by seasoned with salt. It continues, <clears throat> seasoned with salt so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. Paul tells us that as we engage those who don't know Jesus, everyone's going to be unique. Everyone is going to be unique. Therefore, your speech, your response, they must be humble. They must be humble. Because the truth is sometimes you're not going to know the answer and that's the answer. Man, I really don't know. That's a great question. Our response, our, us being proactive about engaging others must be in humility. We must respond with humility. Even when it's something you don't like. Even when it's something you disagree with. Further, that as we respond to everyone, that we respond with clarity. This goes back up to verse four when Paul says, hey, pray so that I may speak clearly. Sometimes people are gonna ask you questions about scripture. I've, I've gotten to hear several of those stories from many of you. My brother asked me this about this portion of scripture. I had an opportunity to lead prayer and people had questions afterward. Man, I have a group of students that I've been, you know, given the opportunity to share the gospel with. They're going to ask questions. And so briefly, I want to take you to Acts 8. And in Acts 8, we see Philip running to this uh, Ethiopian who's, who's reading. He's reading Isaiah 53. I'll just read it and we'll chew on it a little bit. And Philip went, and there was this Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. We come to find out later that he's reading Isaiah 53. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip runs to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? This is called a soft pitch. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. That's called a soft pitch. All of us get soft pitches all of the time. Therefore, as they come, do you take them? Do you take them? Because In these everyday rhythms and moments, you will be given opportunities to answer questions where you are being invited to help others understand. Do you take it? Faithfulness involves missional living. And remember, Paul is assuming that the Colossians and us, at the end of the day, we're engaging with people who don't know Jesus. Like this is part of your life. Faithfulness involves missional living. And finally, we come to verses seven to 14. These are Paul's final greetings to the Colossians. And we're looking at faithfulness in serving. And though it's traditional of the Apostle Paul to provide a list of people he's with, this is by far one of the longest, if not the longest lists of people that Paul is with. It's like his Facebook friends. 
And for the purpose of faithfulness, I think this list is wonderful because it shows us that not only was Paul not a lone ranger, but it shows us that serving isn't simply serving. Serving involves friendships that are, that are rooted in a love for Jesus. Serving involves a love for the church. And serving involves friendships that develop over time through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so let's look at each one of the people Paul's lists. Paul lists, excuse me. Beginning, and some of these are Greek names. We're going to butcher them. There's grace, right? We just talked about that. Anyway. <clears throat> Beginning with the first one, Tychicus. Tychicus is mentioned in Acts 20, Ephesians 6, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Right? Here's what Paul says about him. He will tell you about all my activities. That's what he's telling the Colossians. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. It seems that his role was, yes, to inform the Colossians of how Paul was doing, but also his role uh, was involved in carrying several letters that Paul wrote. Like, his job was uh, uh, carrying letters from Scripture. What would end up becoming the Bible, homeboy is carrying them. That's a big responsibility. Paul says, hey, I've just written to the Colossians. Boom, signed. I need you to take this to him or to them. And he's been tasked with this, right? And he tells them that, that he's being sent to Colossae to encourage. The word encourage here is strengthen, that they would, their hearts would be strengthened in the Lord. That's a really good friend, right? That's a really good friend who's just, hey, man, tell me what you need me to do. Right? How is it that we can advance the gospel? I need you to take this letter to the Colossians. I need you to take this letter to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. I need you to take this letter to the pastors at Ephesus. Homeboy does it. Right? And as I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of like certain individuals, and I certainly think of our staff team, but I also think about, in particular, LC. She's our kids director. She is that like, all right, what do we need to do? What's going on? How do we need to do this? How is the gospel going to be advanced? Who do I need to talk to? What, you know, all these different things. And I will say this, right? I told her this this week, but, but man, this week she was a huge help. There was a ton of things that we had to get ready and I was stressing out. And so at our staff meeting, I'm walking her through this giant list of things and she's like, done. I saw her later on in the week. She was like, hey, they're done. What's next? That's a faithful servant. That's awesome, right? <clears throat> The idea here is, man, a, a good friend who is in it for the advancement of the gospel. Right? Good friend who's in it for the advancement of the gospel. The next one is uh, Omnisimus. I think I said that right. Anyway. The only other time we hear from him is in Philemon. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about that because next week we start Philemon. But what we do know about him is that he is from Colossae. Paul goes on to say, I'm sending you uh, uh, Omnisimus, uh, who is one of you. Right? That is, he is from Colossae. What we do know is that something happened between him and this dude named Philemon. He sinned against him or he stole from him. And check out this providence, right? So Omnisimus runs away. At some point, gets arrested, gets thrown in prison. And who's in prison? Paul. He's like, what's up? My name is Paul. He's like, hi, I'm Omnisimus. Hey, you're a sinner. Oh my God, I am. I surrender my life. This dude becomes a Christian <laughs> while in prison with Paul. And Paul is telling the Colossians, hey, I'm sending him back to you as a brother. We'll talk more about that next week. And the next one is, and I think Gabe did a way better job at naming all these names than I did, right? <laughs> I think he had practice, right? Aristarchus? I don't know. We'll see. Whatever. Here's what I love about this guy. He's mentioned in Acts 19, Acts 20, Acts 27, and Philemon. Paul calls him a prisoner who is with him. My fellow prisoner greets you. That word prisoner translates into the phrase prisoner of war. Translates into prisoner of war. Here's why I think that's so big, right? This dude was with Paul through several of the beatings and riots that we see Paul engaged in in the variety of cities that he was in throughout Acts. This guy was like Doc Holliday. Have you ever watched Tombstone? 
right? Doc Holliday is just like faithful to Wyatt Earp, right? Doesn't even care, right? There's this one point where there's this shootout, what is it, with Curly Bill? And at some point, some of the guys are like, man, I don't even know how he could do that. Go out into the lake, you know, the guys are shooting at him and they all missed. And man, we've never seen anything like this. And then Doc Holliday says something to the extent of, well, I'm here to help out Wyatt. And one of the guys says, man, I got plenty of friends that I wouldn't do that for. And Doc Holliday says, I don't, right? Like what Doc Holliday is to Wyatt Earp, Aristarchus is to Paul, right? I'm there, I'm with you. Same thing here. I think about Eric. He's our liturgy director. I've known him since we were, since he was like 13, 14, right? Got to see him come to faith in Christ, right? See him get married, be an awesome husband, uh, awesome father, but we've also gone through some stuff, right? A couple of scars, a couple of wounds, still trucking, kind of, sort of, right? <laughs> and, and oftentimes I really appreciate meeting with him one-on-one -on -one like we did on Thursday night because it's all the feelings. It's like one of the safest spaces I know I can have to talk about my feelings. That's what he is. He's like a dog holiday. The next one is Mark, right? This is a great encouragement. If you want something to read this week and you're like, I really don't know where to start with Mark, okay? Paul says, <clears throat> Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received, if he comes to you, welcome him, okay? Here's when it comes to Mark. Mark is mentioned in Acts 15 and then once more in 2 Timothy. Right? Here's, why it's so here's why Mark is so encouraging. Mark and Paul had some beef. If you go back to, to Acts 15, at one point Paul was saying, hey, the mission is here, we need to go here. And Mark's like, nah, man, I think I need to go home. Right? I, I don't know about this. And Paul's this faithful dude, he's this soldier for the Lord. And he's like, we don't need dropouts, you're a quitter, go away. <laughs> right? Like, you're, you're dead to me. And, and Barnabas, who's the encourager, is like, nah, man, come here, Mark. Right? Like, hugs Mark, you're gonna come with me. So at some point, they had beef with one another. But here's what's interesting, in Colossians, Mark's with them. And so we see some reconciliation between him and Paul. And then when we see Mark uh, mentioned once more in 2 Timothy, Paul says uh, to, to Timothy, hey, when this letter gets to you, send Mark. He is useful to me. So we see beef between Paul and Mark. We see reconciliation in Colossians. And in 2 Timothy, we see the restoration of a friendship. And the reason 2 Timothy is so important is because uh, that was the last letter Paul wrote. So we see restoration between him and Mark. And this was kind of Mark's uh, sometimes MO, right? It got really hard in the mission, and he was like, deuces, <laughs> right? But when you read through the Gospel of Mark, which he wrote, right, there is this one little section of Scripture as they are arresting Jesus, right, and, and they're asking Peter who he is, and there's this one little verse where it says that one of the guards grabbed one of the disciples by his robe and homeboy did a wizard where he just like gets out of the robe and runs away naked. That was Mark, right? <laughs> so if you don't know what a wizard is, it's, it's not a make-believe elf, okay? Uh, so this is a tangent, just so we're all clear, right? Okay, in wrestling, when an individual takes a shot, a single leg or a double leg, right? Uh, a defense that we were taught in high school and in college is called a wizard. And so in other words, if they have a good hold on you on your single leg or on your double leg, you can kind of put some context together, right? If they got one of your legs, you got both of your legs and you don't know what to do, do a wizard. In other words, do whatever it is you can, even if you look like a fool, to get out of their grip that they have on you. And so, no one cares about that. Next up, right, when we, get, when we get back to Mark, he was the one that pulled a wizard and ran away naked. And yet, not only do we see him reconciled to Paul, not only do we see him restored in relationship to Paul, but homeboy wrote one of the books of the Bible. And so, if you regularly feel like you're dropping the ball, read Mark. He is of great encouragement. Next one is justice or hustus if you're Hispanic, right? Um, 
We don't know much about Hustus. <laughs> we don't know much about him. But Paul says that he, along with Aristarchus and Mark, were a great comfort to him, particularly or perhaps because they were all of a Jewish background. And so they kind of understood one another. There was some familial or, or familiarity with them. Right? This could be because of the depth of their friendship. This could be simply because of uh, their, their, their cultural norms. I was reminded of a story from a friend of mine who taught for a number of years in Portland, and he taught at this school where he was one of two Hispanics. And at one point, they're having this big faculty meeting, and the principal is kind of getting on him about some updates, and his friend, his other Hispanic friend who's on the other side, this is really old school. Some of you may not even know, right? His friend who's on the other side is doing this to him. Now, this means you're going to get it. You're going to get in trouble. Something's going to happen. And he busts out laughing. I think that's the kind of familiarity that Paul is talking about. Like, man, there are just some things that us Jews know about, right? And so when he's talking about Mark and Aristarchus and, um, excuse me, and, and Hustus, he, there's that familiarity that they share. And the next one is Epaphras. Not much on Epaphras because he is mentioned in chapter one, but in case you forgot, he was the individual who planted Colossae. And I love what Paul has to say to the Colossians about Epaphras. He says that he is struggling. That is that he is wrestling. He is uh, 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 going through um, a struggle for them in prayer so that they would mature. Like his heart for the Colossians is that they would mature in their faith. In chapter one, Paul says, I am thankful to God for Epaphras, who's been a, a faithful minister. In other words, he's been teaching the word to you faithfully. In chapter two, as he says, since you have received this faith in Christ, so walk in him, remember the faithful teaching that you have received. That's Epaphras. He's a good pastor who loves his church. And Paul is saying he loves y'all. He wants you to mature. He wants you to grow in godliness. He wants you to fix your eyes on Jesus. I thought that was so encouraging, right? Epaphras is also like the relational guy. He's the connector to other churches. Paul mentions the Laodiceans and he mentions uh, Hierapolis and, and he says, hey, make sure that this letter gets distributed to them, but make sure you're checking in on them. He's the relational guy. Then we have Luke, who's the author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and he's hanging with Paul. He's doing his writing. Luke is simply that faithful friend who's been with Paul from the beginning who has countless stories, who has seen all the things, and is just faithfully pursuing the Lord while walking alongside his friend. I think about, because he's right to my left, I think about Gary, just faithful, has been there from the beginning, has a bunch of stories, right? could tell you all the different things, the changes, the celebrations, right? just a faithful, faithful friend for the gospel. Next one is Demas. Demas is mentioned in Philemon and 2 Timothy. Now, here's the thing. In Colossians and Philemon, he is mentioned of, well, he says, he is a fellow worker of mine, right? I'm down with Demas. In 2 Timothy, something happened. We don't know what happened. But in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, for Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So far, we've looked at faithful friends, the Doc Holidays, the LCs, right? Like faithful friends who are serving in ministry alongside you, advancing the gospel, or just being faithfully present. We've also seen strife between friends where there is reconciliation and restoration, but here we see abandonment. That not only did Demas walk away from what we, what we know from, from the faith, he walked away from Paul. Friendship isn't without hardship. And it certainly isn't without hurt. And I know many of you have experienced that. I'm very sorry. And it's not just, oh, that's just part of the gospel. No, it hurts. It hurts deeply. If 2 Timothy was in fact Paul's last letter, him thinking about his friend Demas, who was with him throughout his writings to the Colossians and Philemon, only to not have him there, must have been very, very difficult for him. The next one is Nympha. She's one of the many women mentioned in the New Testament who was a pillar in church planting. 
She offered her home for the church to gather so that the word would be preached, so that people would be ministered to. She opened up her home so that the church would gather, so that the gospel would be advanced, so that more people would come to know Jesus. She's like Lydia to the the Philippians. I'm reminded of our group leaders who regularly open their home so that people would come together and gather and grow in God's word together. Paul mentions the Laodiceans. Here's what is so great about the Laodiceans. Uh, Paul is talking about a network of churches. So you got the Laodiceans, you got Colossians, and you got Hierapolis, right? And so what that tells us is it's not just that individuals shouldn't only not run by themselves, but churches should not run by themselves. You need to have friendships with other churches, right? Paul even tells uh, the Colossians, make sure that this letter is read to the Laodiceans. So I'm personally very thankful for the friendships that we have uh, within other churches. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you about Frontera. That's the church planning network that we're starting. That consists of us, Logos Community Church in Harlingen, River Church in Brownsville, and maybe one more in San Benito. It is wonderful hanging out with them. It is wonderful advancing the gospel with other churches in our context. But in addition to that, I'm also very thankful for some of the friendships we're developing here in McAllen. I think about Pastor Tom McKeon, who is at Grace Presbyterian Church in, in, uh, I guess it's kind of North McAllen, north of 29th. He's been there for for 30 plus years. What I love about him is I've known him since before I was a Christian. And so I can't even call him Pastor Tom. It's Mr. McKeon. It's weird when he says, Brother Marco, no, sir. I'm like, down here, just, <laughs> right? Like, I love Mr. McKeon. I think about Pastor Daryl out at Valley Community Church, right? Transitioned into that leadership role about two, three years ago, homeboys from Florida. And he's like, the Valley's cool, <laughs> Right? I'm thankful for the friendships that we get to develop here at home. I'm thankful for the friendships that we have outside of the valley. And finally, Archippus. It's the last one he mentions. Not much is known about him. This is the only time uh, we see his name. Here's what's encouraging about him. Paul hooks him up with a personal encouragement. Perhaps he was a leader in the church. I don't know. But he hooks him up with a personal encouragement. Here's what he tells him. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Each one of us here has been given a ministry, whether it's in the context of the local church, at home, at your workplace, whatever. Each one of us here has been given a ministry. And that's an encouraging piece because Paul says, hey, take ownership of your ministry the ministry that you have been given, the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Paul says it similarly to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He says, fulfill your ministry. Each one of us here has been called to the work of ministry. Each one of us here has been given ministry opportunity. Serving in the local church involves the start of friendships that are rooted in a love for Jesus, rooted in a love for the church, and they are developed over time. And so if you call Storehouse McKellen home, then you are called to the work of ministry. I'm very thankful for my friends in our church. Very thankful for our church. Right? And then when it comes to serving particularly in the local church, that we go to where the needs are. Uh, last week we had the men's gathering and I was teaching from Acts 6. And in Acts 6, we see that the needs of the church are increasing and that the, the apostles, the, the, the preachers, they can't keep up with those needs. And so they assign seven men to meet the needs of the church. And, and there's this little phrase in Acts 6, 1 through 4, there's this little phrase where, where uh, Luke says that the apostles told him, we will send you to where the duty is needed. In other words, it wasn't this like, hey, so where do you feel like serving? Where does your heart tell you, right? And he's like, hey, these are the needs. We need you to go meet them. And these were men who of good godly character, individuals who were filled with the Holy Spirit, individuals who had a good reputation, who were faithful. And sometimes 
Man, serving in the local church, just like serving in your home, involves to going to where the needs are, not just what you want to do. All right? And I think oftentimes the church in the States has that flipped. Well, I want to pray about where this is the need. Sometimes it's actually not about starting something new. Sometimes it's just about being faithful where we are because the needs are dense. As our church has grown, so have the needs, right? Serving involves friendships. Serving involves a love for the church. Serving involves faithfulness. And all of this to say, how can we forget? This list of friends that I hope you're encouraged by, warned by, all of this to say, how can we forget the greatest friend of all, that all of this was made possible, all of this was empowered by the friend of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, who first-handedly demonstrated this to his friends. In John 15, here's what Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He demonstrated it firsthand to his friends. Paul closes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He says it that way because there were false letters circulating uh, at this time. He says, I write this with my own hand. Remember my chains. That is him asking them, hey, continue to pray for me. I'm not asking you to change these chains. I'm saying, and what I'm saying is these chains are the cost of the gospel. Keep praying for me. Paul says, grace be with you. The entire letter has been covered by God's grace for the Colossians. The grace of God is not simply affection. It's undeserving favor from God for the purpose of his glory and our good. This grace enables us to walk in Christ. This grace reminds us of who we are in Christ. This grace brings about thanksgiving because of Christ's work for us. The supremacy of Christ assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. Faithfulness involves prayer, missional living, and serving. Faithfulness is the call that each one of us has to live out, and we do so through these three areas. No one is exempt from it. Yet, at the same time, faithfulness cannot be a checklist. Even if you wanted it to be, it cannot be a checklist because it must begin with a love for Jesus. Because in that spot is where our hearts are evaluated, where sin is confessed. You can't just check the box because now you're just being prideful. You actually have to engage it. You have to engage with this love that regularly draws us toward him so that we would be more like him as we walk in Christ. So as we close, Christian, do you lack faithfulness? Look first to Jesus, who is supreme and sufficient. Look to his supremacy to be reminded of who he is. Look to his sufficiency to be reminded of who you now are. Look to his faithfulness so that you may walk faithfully. This morning, confess your sin. Lay your heart out on the table. Who hasn't let him down in this room? Lay your heart out. Cast your burdens onto the Lord, and may he meet you with his grace in your confession. And if you don't know Jesus, faithfulness in Christ is only possible through a renewed heart, one that has been purchased out of bondage to sin one that is redeemed. Apart from a new heart, you are still at war with God. You are still estranged from God. Yet the letter to the Colossians is a beautiful picture of the grace of God towards sinners, where through Jesus Christ, he is ready to pardon all who turn to him in repentance and faith. For this pleases him. Church, remember, faithfulness is rooted in a love for Jesus first. Let's pray. Holy and merciful God, in your presence, we confess our sinfulness.
we confess our shortcomings and our offenses to you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your truth, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love and faithfulness. Have mercy on us, Lord. For we are ashamed and sorry for all that we have done to displease you. Forgive us of our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.